Hello and welcome to episode 89 of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. This episode is coming a little bit late in the week, so if you are keeping up currently, I'm sorry that this one is coming on a Friday, but for the rest of you, you're probably listening to this in the future anyway. This is the first episode of the month of March, the year 2023, so we're going to have a lot of news regarding things coming out this month, and so we're not going to start with any new segment. Those are going to be kind of throughout the podcast as we get to those relevant topics. So we're going to start this episode with our tarot lessons, which this week is number two of the major arcana, and that is the high priestess. We're going to talk symbolism. I'm going to go through what I have on my own notes. Uh, the history, which is pretty interesting because there's a fair amount of conspiracies that are involved with the history. Uh, the meaning of the card. We're going to talk about the anime tarot correspondence or the uh, the characters who are in the Natasha Iglesias anime tarot for the high priestess. And then uh, the the Marvel Tarot, which is actually kind of interesting for this card because it's a fairly extensive entry, which a lot of them are pretty brief. So it's cool. The, it's a very fun pop culture look, uh, just like the anime tarot at uh, the uh, High Priestess card. And we'll wrap up that segment with what our deck of the month is, which, spoiler alert, it is the Pagan Cats Tarot. So I'll talk a little bit about that one because I love cats. And then on our manga segment, we'll start with Manga of the Week to continue the, uh, you know, early 2000s kind of era mangas, we're going to talk The Wallflower, uh, which has a couple other names, but we'll talk about that when we get there. We have a lot of information on that one, uh, and then we'll go into new mangas releasing this month. There are some that are coming out for the first time, and then we'll briefly go over a couple of interesting sounding ones, or ones that I'm familiar with at least, for what is continuing mangas that are also getting released this month, which leads us into comic books, uh, stuff that was new this week that came out the week of March 1st, the first week of comics of the month, um, and then a little bit about things that are coming out that sound exciting that are new from various publishers this month as well for March. In comic book news, we really have one thing which I'm very excited about, uh, and that is about Ultimate Invasion, and I'll talk about why I'm excited for that when we get there. Uh, this week's recent reads includes the wrap-up of the Lazarus Planet event with Lazarus Planet Omega, and a few other very brief things that I have to, to kind of mention before we move on to the TV and movie segment, which will have a lot to be excited about here. There's, of course, the, the brief new and noteworthy things, some announcements, some of which are far more exciting than others, a few things of speculation, because it's always fun to talk about those kinds of rumors. The trailers are not super serious movies by any means. Uh, we saw trailers this week for Wendy and Peter Pan, or possibly Peter Pan and Wendy, um, and the other one was The Haunted Mansion, which they both just look fun, and I think that's the best that we can ask for. There isn't a whole lot that I have to talk about in anime news and updates, but going into current shows, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Mayfair Witches finale, because that was nuts. Uh, and then I'm sure what everybody wants to hear about is the Mandalorian season one episode Sorry, season three, episode one, which started with chapter 17, The Apostate, which is very, very exciting kickoff to the season. We'll talk about the things that, if you didn't see Book of Boba, those like Mandalorian episodes that were in there that you kind of somewhat needed to know to understand what, where we start off uh, with this season. I'll talk about those episodes as well. 
some really fun Mandalorian history, history of Mandalore itself as well, history of war in the Star Wars universe. It's all very tied in together. Um, some fun alien species we see, some character throwbacks, some references to things. Uh, space whales. It was a great episode. What can I say? As for this podcast episode, it's going to wrap up with... I guess I'll just go briefly over my Quantumania notes, because I did watch that, and I have some notes. There were some fun things. Um, overall, I wasn't through... To, I, I wasn't... It was fine. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that at the end of the episode. Uh, but that's the plan for this week. Let's get to it. Our tarot studies this week is covering the second card of the Major Arcana, and that is the High Priestess. We'll start by going over the symbolism on the card, the physical things that you will see on the High Priestess card, and what all of that can be taken as for its meaning. Then we'll get into the history of the card, which is a little bit different than it was for the Magician. The Magician we had uh, some really interesting historical things that were in the interpretation of the card and the character. Um, this history of the High Priestess is a little bit more conspiratorial. We have at least two different female Pope conspiracies that are uh, related to the High Priestess card, potentially, allegedly, you know. Um, and so we're going to talk about those and then what the other ideas of what the person, what the figure on the card, who that person could be. Um, and then we'll talk about the the direct meaning of when you pull the card, what what you will, what the with all of these things considered, what the meaning of receiving this card in a tarot draw or whatever, um, what, what that is. And that'll come from the Biddy Tarot website, which I have been using a good amount for these. And then we'll go into the anime tarot, uh, which is by Natasha Iglesias. We'll talk about the character that uh, she has related to the High Priestess for the Major Arcana. And kind of related to that will be the Marvel tarot. Um, there are three different characters that the creator of this Marvel tarot... Um, it's like his diary, so it says. So it's like this three that he draws when he draws for the high priestess. Uh, so we'll go over who those characters are because it's actually a pretty in depth entry, which they are not. They aren't always in the Marvel tarot. And finally, we'll do some. Since there's not a whole lot of other pop culture stuff about the high priestess, we'll just go over some quotes regarding it. Starting off then with the physical symbolism of what you see on the card. Obviously the figure in the front is who you consider, who is considered to be the high priestess. Um, she traditionally wears a uh, crown with a robe additionally, which symbolize together high knowledge. On the cards, usually, um, it is not on this card that I have in front of me because it is the Modern Witch deck and they don't have it on here, but on most of the High Priestess cards, uh, she wears a cross on the front of her robe, which uh, it symbolizes the intersection of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. She also wears a uh, what, something that is similar to the crown of Hathor, and also if you are familiar with further Egyptian history and um, gods and whatnot, it's also similar to the crown of Isis as well, although hers is much, much larger. But it is officially called a horned diadem, and it has kind of a globe shape in the center there, which is the part that looks more like the crown of Isis. 
there is a lunar crescent moon at her feet, which symbolizes how she is illuminated through reflection and connection to the divine feminine. It also symbolizes intuition, subconsciousness, etc. On either side of her are pillars. One of them is black and the other is white. These are symbolizing the pillars of Boaz and Yakin, which is J-A-C-H-I-N. I'm pretty sure it's Yakin, not Jackin. <laughs> Uh, and those are pillars traditionally taken from the Temple of Solomon, which is where you get into not just some religious aspects of the card, um, specifically with Catholicism here, but also you get into a little bit of the um, the cult conspiracies, which would relate to specifically here the uh, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which I always kind of struggle when they get involved in tarot stuff because they were a little, a little bit kooky and they were trying to appropriate a lot of ancient Egyptian cult and stuff. So, you know, I, I, I struggle with the Golden Dawn folks, but that's what those uh, pillars physically symbolize. However, it's good to also note that Boaz symbolize is the term for strength, uh, and Yakon is the pillar of the establishment. So she sits between uh, strength and the establishment there, which you can take as those physical things, or you can take as, it's from the Temple of Solomon, you know, and that can more you know, culty way, I guess. <laughs> her location between the two pillars marks her as the mediator between the depths of reality. She symbolizes the path between strength and the establishment. There's also a laptop on her lap in this particular card I'm looking at. Traditionally, it is a scroll which says Torah, T-O-R-A, which I believe means knowledge. And between the two pillars, right behind her, hangs a cloth that is covered in fruit. Uh, some of the takes on this have fruit as well as leaves. I believe it is the other one, and that is supposed to symbolize uh, the, the pomegranates or the fruit, and they symbolize femininity, and the leaves are supposed to symbolize masculinity. On this particular card in front of me, it just has the pomegranates. The pomegranates also symbolize uh, the goddess Persephone and her journey to the underworld. The black and white of the pillars also represents just a general duality, um, knowledge and acceptance of duality that are required to enter the sacred space where the high priestess is. And there is also a blue background generally on the tarot's high priestess. Behind everything there is a blue background, and that is meant to symbolize distant water. Water, you know, always symbolizes things like rebirth, knowledge. Water is very fluid pun intended. Uh, and finally, the power of the high priestess is internal, which is in opposition to the magician, card number one, whose power is external. Now to get into the history of this card a little bit, um, there was the question, generally how these, these conspiracies come up is the question of was the original way back when in the 1400s when tarot was first a thing that started coming to knowledge and fruition, was there a person specifically who was being drawn as the high priestess on this card? Um, and a lot of that comes from the fact that, a, I believe it was Italian cards that called it La Papesse, which is basically the female version of a pope, um, which has never been a thing in history, right? Wrong! sort of wrong. Um, there are two conspiracies we're going to talk about here. The first is Pope Joan. I feel like I heard somebody groan just in me saying that because this one has, uh, for the most part, is pretty much seen as not 
a, not a factual character of history. Uh, but what, what her story says is that she was a female pope who reigned for two years in the Middle Ages. Um, her story first appeared during the Chronicles in the 13th century, so the 1200s, and most scholars do regard it as fictional, in large part due to two factors. One is that there were two popes who were ruling uh, during those years that were well documented, and the other is because it was with the 1200s, it would have been like 100 years plus after her death that um, the first writings of her ever would have appeared. So there's those are the two reasons why she's mostly seen as fictional, which for at least one of those I actually have a pretty decent argument against, but we'll talk about that later. Um, Pope Joan allegedly disguised herself as a man to be elected as Pope. Her gender finally revealed itself when she gave birth and she died shortly after through unknown causes, if that was related to childbirth, natural causes, or if she was murdered. She was eventually removed from papal lists and it was decided that future popes must be male. Siena Cathedral, though, now this is the thing that I think is interesting, Siena Cathedral had a statue of her, which wasn't removed until the year 1600, after so many protests that there shouldn't have been, you know, a female pope, and if there was, we shouldn't be, like, acknowledging it because, you know, sexism. Um, the, the legend continues that the given name at her birth was John Anglicus, which I think they, there's a medieval version of that, but that's the, uh, like, modernized version would have been John Anglicus. She would have reigned during the 9th century, so it was a couple of hundred years before their first, like, writing coverage of her there. And that one obviously gives to people that's a huge issue there. Um, notably, however, in my opinion, scholars call her, um, scholars that are against her legend generally call her and things like her evil and symbols of a sinner, which goes pretty far in terms of how much they dislike the, the even the concept of her having been real, which is odd to me personally. Now, the fact that her reign overlapped with two other well-documented popes, I feel like doesn't matter, because then we get into the second conspiracy of who uh, the ancient Italian card La Papesse could have been referencing in its creation, which was Sister Manfreda, um, who, as best as I can find, is a true historical figure. Um, this one's not even really a conspiracy. It was a conspiracy in her time, but uh, as far as I can tell, this, she is a woman who lived and died. Um, she was declared Pope in the city of Milan in the year 1300 as a new, um, a new era of the Holy Spirit. Her life came to an end when she was burned at the stake later that year. So... Good stuff. Um, she was the first cousin of the anti-pope of Milan. Um, I didn't do too much research on him, uh, but she believed that the Holy Spirit manifested in this elderly woman who lived life as a saint. This woman's arrival fulfilled a, a prophecy and she denied it herself. Um, for some reason, I don't get the connection between why Manfreda was burned at the stake. I guess it was just because of heresy is the closest thing that I could get to it there. Um, but that was an era when there were multiple popes. Uh, there was an anti-pope. There was this pope in Milan who was Manfreda. And then there was whoever was the pope in... Um, you know, Rome at the time, I'm sure. Another thing about the Pope Joan conspiracy is for whatever reason, um, 
It was used against Walter Brute, who was a Welsh freedom fighter put on trial for heresy. Um, and he, I guess, believed and supported the concept of her. And for whatever reason, that was put in his trial to further call him things like evil and a sinner, as they called her legend, you know. But I think we all know that Wales uh, hasn't gotten its freedom necessarily still. Um, and there's still a good number of people who think that the titles of the Prince and Princess of Wales, the Duke and Duchess of Wales, isn't that what it is, is a slap in the face to Welsh people, which I can totally see why they would believe that and why that would be a thing. But yeah, the uh, Church of England, uh, when it browned and all of these parts, but the English throne, we'll say, has always been wild powerful, um, and I'm sure it ties into some of this stuff. Uh, and it's also good to remember that the history of the papacy is written by men and for men, so good things to remember here as we move along. Um, the three other things that or beings, people, that the high priestess could be, uh, as a literal translation, would be one, obviously, the Holy Mother of the Catholic Church. I feel like that one is probably pretty obvious. Another one um, is the Clare of the Poor Clares, who were a female branch of Franciscans. It's another Catholic thing. Um, and then, of course, the more modern thinking is that she is just a female contradiction to what a priest would be, basically saying that she's just allegorical. Moving on from the history of that, we'll go into what the actual meaning of the high priestess is when you draw the card. We've talked in the past about upright and reversed meanings, how the reverse is basically the opposite. But upright is the general meaning, no matter uh, what the deck's intention was, and that's what the main meaning of the card is. The high priestess, the upright meaning, is intuition, sacred knowledge, divine feminine, the subconscious mind. In reverse, it is secrets disconnected from the disconnection from intuition and withdrawal and silence. So when you're um, kind of pulling the card, the translations, um, it's a couple of a couple of different things, but it says, while the magician is the guardian of the conscious mind and the tangible world, the high priestess is the guardian of the subconscious and the teacher of the sacred knowledge and hidden mysteries, yada, yada, yada. Your intuitive sense right now is providing you with useful information and is assisting you to become in touch with your subconscious mind. Knowledge of how you fix these issues will not come through thinking and rationalizing, but by trapping, tapping into and trusting your intuition. So allow yourself time and space to meditate and attend your inner voice. Look for areas in your life that may be out of balance or lacking flow and ease. Now is a time of heightened intuitive ability and psychic insight. You are developing these skills. You know, a lot of the Viddy Terra stuff gets in the hooty hooty stuff a lot, but basically... Um, here, this one gets a lot more into it uh, because we know that empathy and intuition and inner wisdom, wisdom and compassion 100% are literal things. There's nothing hooty hooty about that. Um, it says the high priestess is a signal that you're being called to embrace the divine feminine, your connection to your intuition, compassion, empathy, and inner wisdom. Regardless of your gender, it is vital for you to balance and integrate your masculine and feminine energies, sides, and the presence of the high priestess signals that you are, that your sacred feminine needs your attention right now, your compassion, your empathy, your inner wisdom, and your intuition. Feel rather than think, collaborate rather than compete, create rather than destroy. Trust your divine feminine energy side, even if the masculine energy side around you may appear to be stronger. Be proud of your ability to nurture, trust, sense, and empathize those, or empathize instead of hiding it away. I just say sigh instead of energy to kind of solidify the fact that you don't need to believe in anything to do tarot. It's literally 
you can, yeah, you don't need to believe in anything. Uh, it's just 72 ways, 78 ways to look at situations. And that was the high priestess way. The anime archetype who fits the high priestess is the Miko. It says the high priestess's analog in anime is the Miko, a shrine maiden of the Shinto religion. Many Miko characters in anime are depicted as having innate spiritual powers and sacred mystical intuition. They can even have second sight, an ability that can include seeing visions. The epitome of the divine feminine, these characters are usually born with latent abilities that awaken when most needed, although these abilities can also be cultivated with practice. The Miko appears in Inuyasha, where there is a number of characters who are a Miko. It is Rei Hino from Sailor Moon, Kaho Mizuki from Cardcaptor Sakura, and Tomoe from Queen's Blade. And we'll go over the Marvel Tarot next, uh, which again is like this dude's diary, so we'll just read it the way that he wrote it, which is kind of fun. Uh, he has three different characters who he assigns to the High Priestess. One is Wanda Maximoff, one is Agatha Harkness, and I believe the third is Aurora Monroe. So let's see. The Priestess. Three different lovely ladies have appeared in robes of the Tarot's Priestess, but here is a cracked card that I think I understand. Agatha Harkness was the priestess for a long time. Now I think she is dead. But I thought she was dead then. She wasn't dead. But actually she was. Aunt Agatha is confused. I am confused. The deck appears to be confused about her as well. One of three times the priestess appears as Agatha Harkness. Agatha was grooming Wanda Maximoff to replace her as the priestess, but the Scarlet Witch went Red Queen mad and started shouting, Off with their heads! Where did it all go wrong? She wore the serpent crown for a time. Was it the old worm whispering in her ear that set her off? I am more inclined to think that the other one was the cause. From the beginning, he has groomed her to be the end. She is strong. There is still hope for her. The, so, the cards think so, anyway. One of three times, the priestess appears as Wanda Maximoff. This was a bit of a surprise. While searching for the location of the Sword of Bone in ancient Egyptian texts, I came across the writings of a sorceress named Ashake. Remarkably, she had traced the bloodline of her ancestors back to the age of Atlantis, and a sorceress named Ayesha, who was possibly the first priestess and the very possibly that era sorceress supreme. Even more remarkably, Ashake somehow traced her line of descendants into the future, all the way to her present-day descendant, Aurora Monroe. Ms. Monroe, or Mrs. T'Challa, because that's when this was written, <laughs> must have great mystical mystic potential, but she has not tapped it. Has clearly not needed to, nevertheless, the cards are desperately seeking their archetype. One of three times, Aurora Monroe. And he's really not wrong. Um, I'm sure... This was written way after the Magic uh, series, but I'm sure um, he was referencing the otherworldly Storm who we meet in uh, Magic, Ileana, and Storm, which was the series that tells what happens when Ileana goes to Limbo. Uh, and there she meets Storm from another reality who is uh, a basically a priestess. She's she's a um, very, very powerful magician. And while we haven't really seen the storm of our current comic universe tap into that too much, there recently especially have been little bits of pieces, I feel like, hinting that her power is going to evolve into something else. Obviously, we saw her um, terraform along with Iceman and whoever else it was, uh, terraforming Mars into Araka, which was wild. I thought that was really cool. Um, so who knows what the future holds for Storm? 
So the last thing uh, on about the high priestess that we'll talk about is these two quotes from the Bridget Elsa Montero book. The first is from Rudolf Arnheim, who was a psychologist. He says, all perceiving is also thinking. All reasoning is also intuition. All observation is also invention. Second quote is from Albert Einstein. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and science. Which, if you want to put that in layman's terms, pretty much means follow your curiosity because it will get you things or kill you. But that's another that's another quote. <laughs> Our deck of the month, as I mentioned before, is the Pagan Cats Tarot or Tarot of Pagan Cats, depending on how, where you're searching it. Um, I have this deck in the miniature version, which is just thrilling. It's one of my favorite decks. Um, and if the title didn't really explain it to you well enough, it's all cats. All the figures on the cards are cats. All 78. And then however many extra figures are in the cards. But yeah, super cool. Absolutely adorable. Wild genius. Um, the the tarot itself was designed by Magdalena Messina, and the art was by Lola Argari. Sorry, Araji. Um, I totally butchered that. I'm sorry. I couldn't find too much on these two women, unfortunately, uh, especially regarding this tarot deck. So I don't have really any information on them. Uh, but I do have that. It was um, it is published by Los Carabo. Uh, Scarabeo, Scarabeo, Scarabeo. Um, and what they say about it is these sweet, mysteriously playful or reserved cats seem to live in a world of all worlds, a realm of magic and power. Whether they are a pagan's familiars or a witch or witches themselves, cats possess innate wisdom. In these beautiful, beautifully illustrated cards, they travel among the arcana and share their secrets with us. There's a, there's a reason that people worship cats in the past. Um, and as for the High Priestess card on this one, it's actually on the box. I don't have my box for my cards because, um, it got wet and basically disintegrated, but somehow the cards survived. So, uh, what the card looks like is it's a black cat is the High Priestess. She's got the, uh, the cloth behind her of the, uh, the pomegranates and the leaves. Instead of pillars on either side of her, it's curtains. There is a large moon behind her head. So she's not wearing the crown, but the crown images are still there with the horns and the moon kind of reflecting on the wall. And she sits on a, um, scroll, which says things that are not legible, but the scroll also contains a crescent moon. So it has all of those important symbols there. Um, even the blue in the background with the, the whole everything with the pomegranate, it's, it's blue on there as well. So it has all of the symbols that are necessary to make it the High Priestess card. And it's cats! I love it. Our manga of the week this week is The Wallflower, which was super cool. Uh, it published from January 2000 through 2015. Um, you may also know The Wallflower by titles Perfect Girl Evolution, uh, and I think the anime went by Seven More Metamorphoses of Yamato Narashiko, which I think means The Wallflower. Um, I couldn't quite clarify that, but it holds a very firm place in my heart. And it was written by Tomoko Hayakawa. I so apologize for saying that wrong, I'm sure. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that this creator has done. Um, I'll have them all listed on the... Um, 
the, the, the podcast notes if you're looking at those at all. But basically, uh, the Wallflower is just the, what seems to be the most successful of nine projects that they have been uh, created through their career. As for the Wallflower publication, it was serialized in its chapters in Besatsu Friend since premiering in 2000 through its finale in January of 2015. They were also made into what amounted to be 36 volumes that came out in Japan by Kodansha Comics, who was licensed for English language release in North America by Del Rey Manga. In Singapore, it was done by Trang Yi, and it was also published under a different name, My Fair Lady, which I suppose you can see why that would be a good title for it uh, when you hear about what it, what it's about. I guess you can see the, the similarities. Uh, also, it was published in Indonesia by Level Comics under the name Perfect Girl Evolution, uh, which is what I think I had already mentioned is one of the official secondary titles. Plus, Nippon Animation adapted part of the manga series into a 25-episode anime series which aired on TV Tokyo and TV Aichi from October 3rd, 2006 through March 27th, 2007. The anime adaption has been licensed for Region 1 released by AD Vision, who paid $500,000, which is not a lot of money. In 2008, The Wallflower became one of over 30 ADV titles whose North American rights were transferred to Funimation. However, it isn't on Crunchyroll yet. There was also a live-action version that began airing in January of 2010 and finished airing with only 10 episodes. The plot. Okay, so a lot of this is just going to be like quotes from things because I wanted to get as much information on here as I could, so bear with me, alright? The plot. It's a gorgeous, spacious mansion, and four handsome 15-year-old boys are allowed to live there for free. There's only one condition, that within three years, the guys must transform the owner's wallflower of a niece into a lady befitting the palace in which they live. How hard can it be? Enter Sunako Nakahara, the agoraphobic, horror-movie-loving, pockmarked-faced, frizzy-haired, fashion-illiterate recluse who tends to break into explosive nosebleeds whenever she sees someone attractive. This project is going to take more than four years ever expected. It needs a miracle. I can actually kind of extend that a little bit. Uh, the story is about Sunako Nakahara, whose first love, in response to her confession, told her uh, she doesn't like ugly girls. In response, she took to shunning light forever, hiding her face behind long black hair, and devoting her life to horror, gore, and darkness. That is, until her well-meaning aunt but well-meaning but melodramatic rich aunt sets Kyohei, Oda, Yuki, and Ranmaru, uh, her harem of teenage Bishonen, which are, you know, the cute boys, on Tsunaku with the task to turn her into the perfect lady. In exchange for this, they will get free accommodation in her big fancy house while her aunt jets around the world in search for her true love. If they fail, they must pay triple rent for accommodations that they have used. With the cost of housing in Japan, this is a dire penalty indeed. Unfortunately for the boys, Sunako has absolutely no intention of playing along with them. She's a creature of darkness and damn well proud of it. The issue is made worse because she can't look at what she calls bright creatures like them without getting a nosebleed, and this predictably puts some stains on their relationship, pun intended. Though she can eventually deal with living with the other three, Sunako and Kyohei's relationship is never the best, resulting in some early murder attempts on Sunako's part, lots of bickering, fighting, occasional saving each other, and, you guessed it, everyone in the cast trying to set them up. 
Sunako enjoys the company of mannequins plotting murders and going on corpse hunting adventures and was befriending bears and demons from a young age. By her own admission, she lives in the world of darkness, beauty, and, quote, lightness are glaring glaringly bright to her, but her logic too is a bit alien. Thinking Gothic Victorian where will make you quote fade into darkness, her brain redefining quote naked after seeing Kyohei after Kyohei seeing her nude, gaining muscle social resemble an anatomical doll, etc. It is a reverse harem manga, which is I think we talked about it before the the harem concept is is when you have a manga where it's uh, a boy or a man who has all of these female suitors um, who will end up going to the ends of the world for him whether or no, whether or not they realize that they're head over heels for him uh, or whether they even really are it is still considered a harem so in reverse a reverse harem is when it is a female character surrounded by male suitors and no not all of these characters are male suitors but in the similar sense as with the harem. It's just a female character surrounded by attractive male characters who care about her for some way, uh, in some way at least. So there we go <laughs> with the explanation for reverse harem. This manga is also very food obsessed. Um, you will probably get hungry reading it. There are tons of there is tons of fucking tons of cooking. And just as much enjoying food, uh, Sunaku cooks for what they are the kitchen illiterate boys. They also break the fourth wall a fair amount of times, which is really fun. Uh, some of the tropes that you get here is that the whole can't live with them, can't live without them. It's Sunako and Kyohei. They like hate each other, but actually love each other. But you know, don't get along, but protect each other. You know, stuff like that. And then there's some reveals towards the end of the manga, spoiler alert, that they had actually met as children and promised to marry each other, which of course complicates their growing relationship. Um, you know, he does, his, the quote is, when I grow up, I wouldn't mind marrying you. And she says, I can't wait. Uh, and this was also the manga that first introduced me to chibis or chibi stylized characters. Um, and I was immediately enamored. I really don't like anything that's non-anime or comic book, or really mostly anime. I don't like things that are non-anime getting chibied. Uh, but I always love seeing it appear in manga and comic books. Let's get in-depth about the characters, because I love this one. So starting with the main character, of course, Tsunaka Nakahara, she is basically a hikikomori, which is a specific form of the a specific extreme form of shut-in who hasn't left their bedroom in a ridiculously long time, something like six months. It is her uh, Her most important friend is a incomplete anatomy model that she names Hiroshi. Uh, per chapter 44 or episode 20 of the anime, after she was called ugly, she found Hiroshi among the trash of a school and took it home, which was the start of her macabre collection. Her other friends, in order of importance, are the skeleton model Josephine, the limbless anatomy model Akira, and the skull model John. They are joined in chapter 50 or episode of the anime 18 by another skeleton, George Maximilian du Veloci. Vidvelos, who is Josephine's brand new husband. She interacts with them as if they were alive, presenting her inner ponderings as their words to her, and most people close to Sunako join in with that kind of projection. In the anime, Hiroshi is alive as the episode's presentator. Presentator? Presenter. I don't know why they said presentator. He also dances during the outros and is joined by Akira and Josephine in the second outro, which they put in during the second half of the anime season. 
Tsunako's nosebleeds when she sees beautiful people, which is a fun Japanese trope about uh, basically being flustered or turned on and the blood starts coming out your nose because of how worked up you are. Uh, the name Sunako is made up of the characters Su, which means ought by all means necessary, and apple tree and child. However, Sunako's name is written in katakana in the series. Wow, I really have no idea what that means. Uh, Kyohei, along with Takenga, Ranmu, and Yuki are the admired by their entire high school. However, Kyohei is the most popular and physically attractive out of the four. Kyohei seems and is to be seen as selfish, blunt, demanding, and has no inclination to be gentle or polite towards Sunako unless it has anything to do with reducing his rent. He has nonetheless proved he can be considerate to her when he tries. Kyohei is closer to Sunako than anyone else. Despite not being a hardcore fan of gory stuff, he has been seen showing, seen enjoying horror movies with her. And although Sunako often states she dislikes his company because it hurts her to be around such radiant creature, God's most beautiful creation, lately she seems fine with his presence. It no longer is bothering her as much as it did in the beginning of the series. On the less light side of things, uh, Kyohei can't keep a job because all of his bosses sexually harass them, be they male or female. So that's that's dark. Uh, then we have her aunt is Mine Nakahara. Um, she made all of the boys swear that they wouldn't tell Sunako of her deal with them, which obviously immediately gets told. The family dynamic is deceased husband older brother, Sunako's father, and then her niece, Sunako. While their interaction is relatively limited, Sunako actually admires her aunt a great deal and considers her the most beautiful woman she knows. Mine, in turn, simply wants Sunako to be happy and believes that helping her niece become a lady will do so, especially since, as a child, Sunako always wanted to be like her. Uh, Takenga is the intellectual of the group. Um, Takenga Oda, he has two older siblings. Noi Kasahara is a close friend of Sunakui, sorry, Sunako, and she is Takenga's girlfriend. Um, then we have Ranmuru, who is the playboy. Uh, then Tamao, who is Ranmuru's long, long-term fiancé, but he doesn't want to marry her. It's a whole back-and-forth thing. Then we have Yuki, who is the little guy of the group. So you get it, you have the, the super attractive one, the playboy, the intellectual, and the little guy. They're tropes of the groups of attractive boys, right? <laughs> in, in, in manga. Uh, we also have the goth loli sisters, who were my first, in, first introduction to the goth loli characterization. They are completely obsessed with the boys. Their names are Lassine, Madeline, Roxanne, and Yvonne. And they are completely ridiculous. Uh, and then we only see Sunako's mother and father, uh, I think her mother only once and her father only a handful of times between both the manga and the um, anime. And we'll wrap it up with some fun facts. Uh, because the manga creator Tomoko Hayakawa is an avid admirer of rock singer Kiyohara, Kiyoharu, Kiyoharu, it was decided that Kiyoharu would perform the theme music for the Wallflower anime, which is pretty cool. His songs Slow and Carnation play over the opening and ending themes, respectively. The songs are a collaboration between the creator and... Sorry, not the creator... Kiyoharu and Takeshi Miyo. I don't know who that is. The background orchestral music was written by two respectable Japanese composers. 
The art style is very much of the era, along the lines of Boys Over Flowers, Fruits Baskets, Oron High School Host Club, etc. The boys are all very pointed features and shaggy, stringy hair, uh, and they run high school high-end cliques for some reason. <laughs> the girls are always like a little bit different from the crowd, which really makes me wonder if that's where we got the whole, like, not like the other girls trope, because like it's a joke now, but it was like a thing that we did when we were kids, millennials, you know. The whole not like the other girls thing, we all wanted to be that girl, right? <laughs> Do we get it from stuff like anime and manga? <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, big trope at the time was tight-knit groups of wealthy, attractive boys who all uh, the girls obsess over, ending up being the like reverse harem of a plain and simple girl from that school. The Wallflower has inspired a fashion line by Julie House that appeared in the 2008 New York Fashion Week uh, magazine, I guess, or show. I don't know what it is. I would love to see the Wallflower redone as like a really self-aware 21st century anime or show or whatever. You know, Sunako being bullied and defended and weird. Uh, the hot boy takes down his harassing teachers and bosses and it's like acknowledged how dark that is and not like a thing that they joke about. <laughs> the playboy falls for the monogamous girl, etc. It would fit so, so well in a modern, in a modern lens, you know. I would love to see that. I just love the Wallflower. And I do have more information uh, on the notes, on my podcast notes. There's a whole bunch of more information that I didn't just go over, as well as links to further information. The manga news that I have, since it's the first week, it's the first episode of March, we're going to talk about some new manga coming out this March, and then we'll go over a couple uh, manga that I'm familiar with who are, that are, who, <laughs> that are coming out with continuing volumes this month. So some new titles, uh, more or less in order of the month chronologically. We have Grandmaster of Demonic Cultivation, My Clueless First Friend, Orange to You, Dear One, Rise of the Outlaw Tamer and His Wild S-Rank Cat Girl, <laughs> Shaman King Flowers, The Eccentric Doctor of the Moonflower Kingdom, I Didn't Mean to Fall in Love, Insomniacs After School, Call the Name of the Night, The Villainous Stands the Heroes, Playing the Antagonist to Support Her Faves, <laughs> Sunbeams in the Sky, The Otherworlder Exploring the Dungeon, The Valiant Must Fall, Tomb's Junji Ito Story Collection. I said something wrong there, I'm sure. The Villainous and the Demon Knight. Why Don't You Eat Me, My Dear Wolf? <laughs> uh, Orange to You, Dear One. I already said that one. Hmm. The School Dragon's Precious Daughter. Who Made Me a Princess? And then the finally, I Didn't Mean to Fall in Love. As for some continuing mangas, some things that I have a really long list on my podcast notes that I'm just going to skim through and see what I recognize. So Black Clover has volume 32 coming out, Yona of the Dawn, volume 38, Shaman King, Omnibus 12, Inspector, volume 17, Kubo, Let Me Won't Let Me Be Invisible, volume 6, let's see, My Dress Up Darling, volume 8, that's one that I have on pre-order, let's see, da, 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 da. Fly Me to the Moon, volume 16, My Hero Academia, Team Up Missions, volume 3, X Yakuza and Stray Kitten. Oh my god, volume two. That sounds amazing. Animal Crossing New Horizons, volume four. I didn't know there was one of those. Oh, Spirit Chronicles, volume two. I think I'm watching that anime right now, if I'm not mistaken. 
if that's the same one. Let's see, what else do we have? Jujutsu Kaisen, Volume 19. Spy Family, Volume 9. Alice in Borderland, Volume 5. Mobile Suit Gundam Thunderbolt, Volume 19. Let's see. Beast Complex 2. Crazy Food Chuck 3. Uh, do You Like Big Girls, Volume 6. <laughs> so I love the titles of mangas. Let's see. Da, 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 da. From from Commonplace to World's Strongest, Volume 10. World's End Harem, Fantasia, Volume 8. That's a fun one, too. Goblin Slayer, I don't like that one, actually. But it's coming out with Volume 4 of the Side Story 2, whatever that means. Love of Kill, Volume 11. RE0, The Frozen Bond, Volume 3. Something Called Shy, Volume 2, Noragami, Omnibus 4, Seven Deadly Sins, Omnibus 9, Soul Eater, Perfect Edition 10, Le Miserable, that's funny, Omnibus 2, Fire Force, Omnibus 3, and Konohana Kitten, Volume 12. The comic book segment is going to have, uh, we're going to cover what came out this week, what I read this week, and also uh, what is new this month, which is actually where we're going to start. Um, this is pretty much all number ones. There's a couple of things that I'm just generally excited about, uh, but mostly just straight up new releases for these various publishers. So at Image, we have a number, gosh, quite a few, Ambassadors, number one of six. Dead Romans, one of six. No One, one of ten. And then we have Phantom Road, number one. Ark, which is a one-shot. Forge, number one. Indigo Children, number one. Stoneheart, number one. And the continuation of Saga, Monstrous, Two Graves, etc. Boom Studios is giving us Neighbors, number one of five, which actually, I should note, has a great Justine Franny cover. Buffy the Last Vampire Slayer, number one, the final issue of Damn Them All, and then the continuation of Grimm with number nine. Dark Horse has Clear, one of three, Order and Outrage, one of four, and then Lady Baltimore, Dream of Icolos, one shot, and Skull and Bones, one of three. IDW has Sonic the Hedgehog, fifth anniversary edition, number one, Teenage Mutant, TMNT Usagi Yojimbo, where, when, I don't know what that is, number one. Some crossover with the two of those, I guess. And at DC Comics, they have Adventures of Superman, John Kent, one of six. Batman, Bat One Bad Day, Ra's al Ghul, which is a one-shot. Dark Knights of Steel continues, 10 of 12. DC's Legion of Bloom is a one-shot. Harley Quinn continues with 28. Uh, Lazarus Planet, Revenge of the Gods, one of four. Multiversity, Heart. Multiversity Harley screws up the DCU, one of six. Wow, that's a mouthful. Superman Lost, one of ten. Unstoppable Doom Patrol, one of six. And Waller vs. Wildstorm, one of four. Marvel, well, before Marvel, we'll talk Dynamite just real quick, because there's only a few. Deja Thoris, 2023, number one. Kong, Great War, and Darkwing Duck also have number ones. Then leaves us with Marvel. Avengers Beyond, number one of five. Uh, Clobber in Time, one of five. Hellcat, one of five. Heck yeah. New Mutants, Lethal Legion, one of five. Venom, Lethal Protector, one of five. X-23, Deadly Regenesis, one of five. Excellent, one of five. And then Avengers, Rage of Ultron, Marvel Tales, number one. Doctor Strange, number one. It's Jeff, number one. 
Marvel's Voices Spider-Verse number one, which is a one-shot, I believe. Predator number one. Uh, Corinne Howell has a variant for Women of Marvel number one, which is a one-shot as well. X-Men Unforgiven number one. And on Wolverine number 31, Alex Ross has the worst literally the worst Emma Frost cover I've ever seen. It looks like her shitty action figure. Uh, I officially do not respect Alex Ross in the slightest. He is a hack. Anyway, there's only one point of comic book news that I want to talk about, and that is that Hickman is back, baby! Jonathan Hickman is back at Marvel. No, he's not doing X-Men. I'm sorry if you got your hopes up. I did too, in my defense, when I first heard it, that Hickman was back. Um, but yeah, Hickman is back at Marvel doing other things. And the other things are Ultimate Invasion. So that's fun. It's going to have Miles and the Maker as the center points, which are ultimate characters, if you did not know that. Um, I've been waiting for a while now, since really he showed up, uh, for there to be some kind of, like, really any mention of the fact that Miles comes from a different friggin' universe and nobody talks about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, really cool thing. It was announced for uh, Entertainment Weekly. He is doing Ultimate Invasion alongside Brian Hitch. I do have a little of the Marvel.com article about this because uh, what, what a better way to explain what the heck the Ultimate Universe is other than reading it from the website for Marvel. So what they say here is, Launched over 20 years ago, the Ultimate Universe provided a contemporary take on classic Marvel characters and storylines. Known for its edginess and explosive action, the Ultimate Universe was home to some of Marvel's most talked about and thought-provoking series of the 21st century. The Ultimate Universe reached its cataclysmic end in 2015's Secret Wars, but nothing stays buried in Marvel Comics for long. Is it time for the Ultimate Universe to make its grand return? The Maker seems to think so, and the Illuminati Illuminati must form once again to stop him from his plans to destroy or perhaps rebuild the universe with Miles Morales at the center of it all. We have a quote here, which I believe is coming from Hickman, the Hickman. Revisiting the idea of Ultimate Comics couldn't be re replicating or revisiting what Brian did with the original Ultimates, creating a streamlined modernized version that would eventually become the spine of the MCU, and it certainly couldn't be what I did, which was the final chapter of a pre-existing universe. We also thought the very idea of Ultimate Comics needed to be inverted from what the original universe was. We wanted this to be something that could really only exist in the comic space, a new way of thinking about and enjoying the new version of the Marvel Universe. I'm pretty happy to say it feels like we've accomplished those things and we're very excited for everyone to get to read it. And then from Brian Hitch, he says, It's been more than 20 years since I started the work started work on The Ultimates, a project that would have a big impact on my own career and beyond. So when Marvel came to me with the idea of revisiting the Ultimate Universe with the man who so brilliantly and spectacularly destroyed the last one, I was both feet in. Jonathan is a terrific writer of a big blah blah, well, yeah, we all know all that. I get to bring out two decades of new experience as an artist and storyteller to this. It's new, different, and familiar. It's big budget, high concept, widescreen storytelling. I feel right at home. And Ultimate Invasion number one of four is coming out on June 21st. And I'm just happy to have Hickman back. And yes, of course, it's going to have the the data pages that uh, dude boys love to make fun of Hickman for and pretend that it's like some big stupid thing when really they could never fathom doing something on that level themselves. Yeah, I'm ready to hear the bitching, frankly, because I'm excited. 
And yeah, you can't you can't take that away from me. Jonathan McMahon is back, baby. The main thing I'm going to talk about when it comes to recent read catching up is going to be the finale to Lazarus Planet over at DC Comics, which was called Lazarus Planet Omega. And then we're going to briefly, very, very briefly touch on the Sins of Sinister event, which was recently Immoral X-Men number one, Superman number one. She-Hulk number 10, and then Earth Divers number 5. All very briefly. But here goes Lazarus Planet Omega. Uh, we have the team of King Fireball. Well, not the team. We have King Fireball versus Damien, Black Alice, and the Monkey Prince. And then at the Tower of Fate is Zatanna, Mary Marvel, Cyborg, Blue Beetle, and the world's depowered sorcerers. Since Black Alice took the power from those magicians, she is the only one who can put it back. Zatanna's powers are on the fritz, so instead of uh, going to Alice, she summons Alice to them. But King Fireball magically holds on to her, so she starts getting ripped apart, so Monkey Prince has to jump in and save her. Then the cavalry arrives. Finally, <laughs> Clark and John Kent, Joel Mullen. Hal Jordan, Martian Manhunter, Yara Floor, and Barry Allen. They're off to a pretty good start, but King Fireball reveals that he can now control the magic of the storm and uses it like lightning in his defense. Alice and Monkey Prince make a secret plan. She magics her way to the tower, lets them know about the heroes fighting King Fireball at the Hall of Justice, and that they're losing. She begins to give all of them her magic back, but Zatanna warns her that it's too dangerous. Shifu Pigsy arrives and argues with Zatanna about it, and they decide that the best they can do is to protect her while she acts. At the Hall of Justice, everyone's powers are getting scrambled. Damien gets laser vision, John, well, both, both Kents get John's telepathy, Barry has super strength, the rest of them have super speed. The third and final team was Batman's team. Him, super, well, Supergirl, Blue Devil, and Bruce had been fighting the devil Nezha, who was King Fireball's father, right? But he took over Bruce and took out Ivy and Swamp Thing, and then Kara. Alice's plan to Monkey Prince is then revealed. She says she is done being a puppet, following the plans of others. She tells him she doesn't need protection because she doesn't because she doesn't matter when things are on this scale. She will decide her own fate. As she gives the magicians their power back and they get it all, she kind of explodes. Nezha Batman, because Batman was taken over by Nezha, feels the disturbance and goes to see his son, psychically telling him that he's already failed. King Fireball tries to make the bodies of the Justice League his demonic puppets, but his father still encroaches. He says the storm has changed. It can't all be absorbed, but it can be directed. Now that it, it it's full of the souls of those who had it had absorbed... Nezha directs it to his son, bashing him with countless magical-powered beings all at the same time. The magicians have arrived on the scene, led by Zaytana. They have all absorbed the storm themselves, putting them in peak power shape. Heroes and villains alike fight King Fireball. When Spectre arrives, everything is done. He reflects the terror of King Fireball back on himself, trapping him like that forever. Everyone agrees that going forward, magic will be slightly different. They mourn Alice, who wanders in some other world alone. I'm sure we will see more of her soon.
or at some point in the history. <laughs> Robin hugs his father, unknowing that it is, he is still possessed by Nezha, and that is continued in this week's Batman vs. Robin number 5. And finally, we see the origin of King Firebull. He isn't actually the biological son of Nezha, but the adoptive one from over a millennia ago. He went to have his revenge on Darkseid for the death of his parents, but then learned that their deaths were due to Nezha himself, so he became a demon himself to gain his revenge, and thus was born King Firebowl. The end. There's going to be some more Lazarus Planet stuff later this year, starting this month, so keep an eye out for those. Marvel's Sins of Sinister Event, uh, Immoral X-Men number one. I don't have a lot of great stuff to say about it. It was fine. It was extremely boring, in my opinion. Basically, all you need was the last few pages. Sinister's plan backfired on him, and now his hymns control him. Superman number one, I felt pretty meh about it. Lois is being drawn as brown, which is odd and feels like appropriation. Uh, She-Hulk number 10, Jack had to take off. Jen invites Patsy over to unload, and then Jack comes back. And he basically says he had to make sure that he wasn't harmful to her anymore. Uh, he's not going to touch her, but she is just happy that he's back. Finally, Earth Divers number five. Basically, the plan finally gets initiated. The time-traveling Native American slaughters every person on the ship that he's on, and he hangs them where they're visible so that Columbus comes over to see what happened. There were a lot of kickoffs of things that came out this week uh, for the first of the month uh, from Aftershock, All Day and Every Night, sorry, All Night and Every Day, I said it backwards, number one from writer David Lapham and artist Raulo Casares. A grief-stricken woman is dragged to a cursed party that never ends where she must learn the nature of its terrible secrets before she is consumed forever. Barbarella, The Center Cannot Hold, number one, comes from Dynamite by writer Sarah Hoyt, cover artist Derek Chu, and artist Ricardo Bogani. Barbarella embarks on a desperate quest to find and convince the hidden guides of the galaxy, the architects, that a war with the unnameable will, be, will spell the death of every living thing. Wow, I have no idea what any of that means. Skull and Bones, Savage Storm, number one, comes from Dark Horse as part of a three-issue series based on the Ubisoft game. Ubisoft? Ubisoft? Writers are James Mishler and John Jackson Miller, with artist Christian Rosado. Mad Cave Studios gives Hunt Kill Repeat, number one, by writer Mark London and artists Lee Luffridge and Mark Deering. A decade after the Greek gods invaded Earth and enslaved humanity, the goddess Artemis seeks revenge against her father Zeus, whose ideology defi she defied and was punished by being trapped of stripped of everything she ever loved. Rock and Roll Hell, number one, comes from Sumer Sumerian Comics, with writer Sam Ro Romesberg and Ben Roberts, with uh, artist, cover artist, and variant cover artist Giorgio D'Angela. Red Zone, number one, comes from AWA, with cover artist Raza, uh, writer Colin Bunn, and interior artist Mike Diodato Jr. and Lee Ruffridge. An American professor is tasked by the government for a secret international mission back to Russia, where his long-buried secrets are revealed, forcing him to fight his way out of the country, utilizing a particular set of skills. That sounds familiar. Phantom Road number one comes from Image Comics by Jeff Lemire and Gabriel Valta. A car wreck reveals a strange artifact that sends two truckers into a surreal world where they are pushed by, oh, sorry, pursued by strange and impossible monsters. 
Buffy the Last Vampire Slayer number one is a special one-shot by from Boom Studios by Casey Gilly and artist Joe Jaro. Deadfellas number one comes from Scout Comics by Cody Hamilton and art by Ramiro Borallo. Rescued from suicide by a benevolent spirit, a man sets out to bond with his ghost with this ghost at all costs, but quickly learns he doesn't understand the paranormal or their intentions. DC Ruby number one from DC Comics has was written by Marguerite Bennett with art by Megan Hetrick and has a fun Merc and Dolphil variant. This is going to be a seven-issue series. Marvel has Hollow's Eve number one by Erica Schultz and Michael Dowling. I don't think I'm going to read it, but we do get some great covers by Art Germ, Rose Besh, Sabine Reich, Stephanie Hans, and that utter hack, Alex Ross. Rogan Gambit number one is another Marvel title from Stephanie Phillips and Carlos Gomez. Cover artist Steve Morris, that hack Alex Ross, Lucas Warnick, Zoo Orzu, and Mark Aspinall. I Am Iron Man number one is a standalone series with each issue exploring a different era of Iron Man. This first issue is written by Mariwa Ayodel, Mariwa Ayodel, with artist and cover artist Adel... Oh my Adadontan? Adadontan. Akande. I'm so sorry. Spider-Gwen Shadow Clothes kicks off by Emily Kim and Kay Zamza, with a cover art by David Nakayama. And then Cosmic Ghost Rider number one, with Stephanie Phillips and Wong Cabal, I think is just going to be super cool. I have yet to read anything this week. The rest of comics include Purgatory Must Die, number three from Dynamite, Harley Quinn, number 27 from DC Comics by Stephanie Phillips and David Baldion with Matteo Loli. Excellent creative team right there. And then we have Action Comics 1052, which follows up on Lazarus Planet and has a, a, a Power Girl story by Leia Williams and who is it? Marguerite Savage, which is why I am interested in it. And then Batman vs. Robin number 5 follows up on Lazarus Planet and is also the finale of the series. Another finale is this last one we're talking about, DC Black Label's Human Target number 12 by Tom King with some great David Nakayama and Jorge Molina covers. So some things that are new and noteworthy this week. Uh, first of all, I am still very much enjoying Ghosts, Hello Tomorrow, and Shrinking. Those are all really fun uh, for, for actually very different reasons for each one of them. I still think that There Is No Moon Society and Hello Tomorrow, it's a scam, and they don't know it. Make My Day came out, not came out, but I watched it on Netflix. I'm not sure when it came out. Basically, uh, it's like this thing where we find this energy ore on some planet, and then it's discovered that the planet is inhabited by uh, tardigrades big enough to eat humans, which are like those indestructible things. It's a couple of plot falls. We really don't need to go over what those are. And I will say the animation is kind of a lot to get used to, honestly. Um, but once you do get used to it, it is a really, really good... Um, I don't know if you'd call it anime or show. I guess it's an anime because it was supposed to be um, taking place... Yeah, yeah, I guess it's an anime. But anyway, we also had Outer Banks Season 3. I haven't seen the last couple of episodes, but I really enjoy it. It's dramatic as usual, but it's fun. News and announcements in the TV and movie sector. The most exciting point, personally, is that Steven Yoon has been cast in the Thunderbolt series as the villain. Um, really exciting. I, I don't think I've seen him as a villain in anything, and obviously he was... Um, 
what's his name from The Walking Dead, you know, uh, he was just in Nope, great actor, uh, but he's now joined the Marvel cast, the Marvel community, as a yet unannounced villain, um, pretty much everybody agrees that because of what they've been saying about the Thunderbolt show, how they're going to be going up against like a Superman level threat, they were thinking it's going to be Sentry. Sentry is traditionally like Marvel's Superman, um, and he has long blonde hair, which is not always the case because, and then there's this like evil side of Sentry that can come out, which is called the Void, where he has like, he's like the opposite, where he's like dark and evil instead of like Superman, you know? <laughs> what if Steven Yoon is the Void? That would be cool. Give him some long black hair. Oh, I would dig that. Other news, uh, the Hellboy movie that we kind of had rumors was in early development. The director is Brian Taylor and is going to be adapting the Crooked Man arc of the Hellboy comic. And we even have a Hellboy actor that's been cast. That would be Jack Kessie. K-E-S-Y. Um, he looks more like a heck boy, in my opinion. Hellboy's not supposed to be pretty, <laughs> but we'll see how it goes. We'll see. We all know how the last Hellboy adaption went, adaptation. So, uh, no, I basically have no, <laughs> no expectations. Uh, we also learned this week that Dead Boy Detectives, which was the, uh, spinoff of Doom Patrol, um, that has been moved from HBO Max to Netflix because it wasn't going to go forward on HBO Max, um, or they weren't going to go ahead and release it, or whatever the case was with this whole shakeup they did with uh, DC Comics movies and whatever's movies and TV shows. I guess it wasn't going to happen, and now it's moved to Netflix, which, yes, as predicted, gave the Snyder Bros more room to start freaking the fuck out about Snyder Netflix. It's not going to happen, guys. <laughs> The amount of money, Dead Boy Detectives versus Superman's rights, it's a big difference in cost. <laughs> anyway, uh, Something is Killing the Children is also going to find a home at Netflix as a show. Uh, that was the only good James Tynion story, in my opinion. But the interesting thing is that the people who are going to be making it were the creators of the shows Dark and 1899. I'm not sure I saw Dark, but I didn't see 1899, and that shit was awesome. That was just, that was a wild trip, and I, I enjoyed the heck out of it. Uh, and I may actually catch up on something is Killing the Children, because these creators, I may watch this. I will definitely watch this. Who am I kidding? Also, Seth MacFarlane is adapting a series of graphic novels into a show called Shrouded College, which is a corporation in the comic series Hell to Pay. I didn't do too much research on that one because I don't particularly like Seth MacFarlane. Uh, the movie Faith is in early development with director Paul Down and screenwriter Emily Carmichael. Faith is the story of the, I guess you would say, plus-size superheroine from Vault or Valiant or something like that. Um, I have never read it. I don't know anything about it. It gets made fun of a lot and then very fiercely defended a lot. So I don't know where that lands it in pop culture at this point. <laughs> 
Um, Dexter is apparently getting a prequel series, which I thought was funny because there's the whole joke about how nothing made now is original. <laughs> and then we learned that also Nemor is going to be in Kang Dynasty, which we'll talk about Kang in a little bit when I talk about Quantumania, which don't expect my me to be very positive about it. Uh, and then there's a few points of speculation. One is that the Echo series might be premiering in October. One is that Grim Reaper, the brother of Wonder Man, may be appearing in the Wonder Man series played by Demetrius Gross. And then it was also revealed that James Gunn actually knew six months prior to Cavill's social media return as Superman posts that he was not actually going to be coming back. So he just let that man embarrass himself and all of that company um, and then he's been going back and deleting tweets where he says one thing and then reality shows another thing. He's been going back and deleting those tweets. So keep those receipts, folks, so we can make fun of James Gunn some more in the future. <laughs> A couple of trailers came out this week. It was Wendy and Peter Pan and then The Haunted Mansion. Uh, the Haunted Mansion is going to have a really exciting cast full of um, actors and things that we all recognize We've got um, Owen Wilson, Tiffany Haddish, unfortunately Jamie Lee Curtis and Jared Leto, uh, Lakeith Stanfield, Danny DeVito for some reason, uh, and a bunch of other names that I saw a really a lot more extensive list than that the other day. Where is it? Um, Rosario Dawson, Winona Ryder, Dan Levy, uh, yeah, Hassan Minaj apparently. <laughs> a lot of cool names in that one is my point here, and that's why I'll be watching it. Um, the other one was, uh, Wendy and Peter Pan or Peter Pan and Wendy. It looks like it'll be good. I did not realize before that the girl playing Wendy is, um, she's the daughter of, um, Mila Jovovich. Um, so that's kind of cool. She seems like she's a good actor. She was in uh, Black Widow as well, actually, uh, playing young Natasha, I believe. So yeah, she's, she's doing some cool stuff. Um, they made Peter Pan a little bit brown, which I'm sure her someone out there on the internet is mad about and it's a fairy tale and they're also saying the lost boys are are just the name of a group of children gender regardless so i'm sure somebody else on the internet is also mad about that because i guess women are um um woke <laughs> but yeah people people are crazy man i just i'm looking forward to these two projects because they look like not to be lame, but good wholesome fun. <laughs> What's wrong with that every now and then? Jeez. I don't have a whole ton of anime news and updates. Um, I've been catching up on, oh, I've watched all of The Demon Girl Next Door, which was cute. Still kind of making my way through Sword Art Online. I think I've made it into the Gun Art Online one, or the Gun whatever it is online. It's fine. It's not as good as before. Um, things that I am loving this season, though, of anime releases. Saving 80,000 gold in another world for my retirement. By the Grace of the Gods, season two. Tomo-chan is a girl, and Ice Guy and his cool female colleague are definitely the ones that I enjoy most this season. I had this whole plan that I was going to do this long coverage of the Mage Fair Witches finale. <laughs> and then I watched the finale, and the plan changed. Uh, what I had written before I watched the finale was this is the second show whose final whose season finale takes place in the Bayou style swamp, the other being National Treasure Edge of History on Disney Plus. So there isn't really a whole lot else in common or by any means. 
I have a bit of a crush on Alexandria Dario, so it means a lot when I say she is only a fraction of why I've been enjoying this show. My next notes are, wait, WTF? <laughs> because if you watch that finale, that went through your head at some point, for sure. Basically, we learned in the last episode that, um, what's the guy's name? Sid? Sid? I think it's Sid. Um, or Sig? Whatever his name is. Um, they she's pregnant with his kid and then in this episode she like has fully taken back um whatever his name was the demon dude um and then she like goes into this weird dream world where she sees all the knowledge of her ancestors and she for some reason has sex with him and when she wakes up afterwards he's gone basically he fucked his way into her baby Shit, that sounded bad. All of it. It's still less weird than that one time with the Carol and Marcus story where, yeah, it's still less weird than that. Because then she has the baby and she's like, oh, I love my baby. And she doesn't feel like she got used or abused in any way. So good for her. I guess how she takes it is 90% of if it's acceptable or not. So she took it in all in a good way. So I guess we're okay with this, folks. She's, she, I mean... Still, what the fuck? Uh, but yeah, I will definitely be back for more next season. I don't know why. I guess it's just weird enough for me. <laughs> but okay. The main event is The Mandalorian Season 3 premiere, Episode 1, which is actually called Chapter 17, The Apostate. And yes, I really love this. I, I very much enjoyed this episode. I am going to get a little sweaty about it, so bear with me here. Um, I have seen that there were some minor complaints that people had to watch some of the Book of Boba episodes to understand, like, why Grogu is back with Mando. But, I mean, those episodes in question were basically Mando Season 2 Part 2, so I don't know why people are complaining, to be honest. You already have the fucking Disney Plus subscription. I gotta clean up my language today. Um, just watch the episodes, but whatever. If you didn't, for some reason, if you refuse to do that, basically, Mando went to visit Grogu at Luke's training camp to give him the little chainmail suit. The armorer gave him the armorer gave him a little chainmail suit, in case you didn't know that part. Um, Luke refuses to let him see Grogu, or rather, to let Grogu see him. He says that it'll get in the way of his training, which is funny to me because Luke, of all people, should know that living by extremes like that is what, exactly why the Jedi Order fell in the first place, but okay. Uh, as Mando leaves the planet, Grogu spots his ship. He knows that he came to see him and he is sad that he didn't get to. Luke comes to him then with a choice. Stay and do Jedi stuff with me or go and be a little baby alien guy with dad. And uh, so Mando goes to where Boba is to help him fight his battles, literally. While he fights, we see a shiny silver ship arrive on the planet and out pops little baby Grogu, who made the right choice. Uh, Chica Hilaria, whose name I can't remember, she takes him to find his dad and even helps with the fighting. Um, Grogu even helps with the fighting, I mean. And bada bing, bada boom, you are pretty much caught up to where we are. So the uh, episode one of the season starts up pretty much with the armorer who is I guess sort of like a priestess of the Nightwatch style Mandalorians and they're doing a ceremony to give this child his first or possibly lifelong Mandalorian helmet. And I did have to stop to look up the significance of the colors of their helmets and armor because 
there was such a variety among the crowd that it just made me really curious uh, if it meant anything, I guess. So according to the wiki, quote, Mandalorian warriors decorated their armor to reflect personal accomplishments, clan affiliation, or simply personal preference. They often repainted their armor to reflect rank, clan, and possibly the current terrain. They also... They also painted their armor in the traditional colors that represented specific causes the individual might currently be undertaking. The colors, however, did not always have a meaning. Sometimes they were just the colors that particular Mandalorian liked. Some Mandalorians wore pieces of armor to honor relatives, both dead and alive. As of the Clone Wars, these colors were known to have significance. Gray would mean mourning a lost love. Red is honoring a parent. Black is justice. Gold is vengeance. Green is duty. Blue is reliability, orange is a lust for life, and white is a new start. So I don't think any of those necessarily match up with uh, Din, but in case anybody follows that rule of color being significant to what they mean, there you go. We also saw Heavy Mando there, which was cool. Um, they all do the whole, this is the way, which is like their amen, basically. <laughs> um, and they're standing in water as they do all of this. It's very much like a baptism. And the whole group is looking on. Uh, and then it gets real quiet. And a giant space water alligator beastie guy jumps out. And they fight it. And it's really cool to see all these Mandalorians try to take down this, uh, what, was the, what was put in the audio description for the episode as a giant dinosaur turtle, though I would call it an alligator, but I guess it did have a shell, so whatever. Uh, but it does the whole thing where it, like, crushes a bunch of them by rolling over in the water. Um, classic alligator move, you know. I don't know, maybe snapping turtles do that too. I don't know. Um, but who do they get saved by? But the guy, the Mandu, Din Djarin, uh, and baby Grogu in their shiny and one starfighter, which is what their fun little ship is now. After saving the day, he talks with the armorer again, and she repeats herself from the last time that we saw her. Due to removing his helmet in front of others, he is a Mandalorian no more. To be redeemed, he must bathe in the living waters beneath the surface of Mandalore in the mines. But the mines were destroyed, so theoretically he'd have to go on a pretty dangerous and sad, lifeless journey to their homeworld. Din also gives the armor a piece of green crystal, which apparently came from the surface of their one-time homeworld. They call it a relic, and it shows bits of Mandalorian writing. Din says it came from Jawas via, quote, a traveler who claimed to have visited Mandalore's surface. And I'm really curious if that's a person who's going to become relevant. But if the traveler, if what the traveler said was true, it means that they had gone to Mandalore after the Great Purge and lived to tell the tale. The writing fragment came encased in a green tinted glass. The armor says it confirms that the war turned the surface, the whole surface of the planet, to this kind of crystal. She said the Empire quote crystallized Mandalore with fusion rays. After Mandalore's millennia of wars, the planet was left with a sand-covered desert surface dotted by technologically advanced biomes or biodomes so after intensive bomb bombing it is likely covered in glass now but dim knowing he must be redeemed he's gonna go anyway on the trip through hyperspace we see pergil which was super cool there are the space whales um we saw them animated in rebels i just i thought that was so cool i got super excited what do we love about star wars big beasties Anyway, uh, then we get to Navarro and Mando talks to Greek 
Karga, that's the this is the previous base of the Bounty Hunters Guild, and we learn that Kara Dune, RIP, has been recruited by the Special Forces, and Moff Gideon, who was played by Giancarlo Esposito, uh, has been sent off to a New Republic War Tribunal. So theoretically, he is not in the picture anymore, but who knows. IG-11 from the first season does come back briefly, having been made into a statue as a hero, uh, but he's all angry and evil again, so they take him to the tiny little Anzelins, uh, possibly Babu Frick, we're not sure, but it's at least the same species. Din goes into their tiny little palace, or place, I don't know why it's palace, which is hilarious, uh, and we did see Babu Frick in Rise of Skywalker. They tell Mando that the only way to bring back the more nurturing version of IG-11 will be to find the part that the and Zelens need to fix him properly, so we'll see how far we get in that this season. We also meet the pirate king Gorian Shard, who takes issue with Mando when he comes to the lethal aid of Grief Karga during their meeting. Gorian is very upset with Karga because Navarro has gone legit, the pirates have been cut out of the spoils that were once there, and he wants to be paid for what he's missing out on, because it's not there anymore. Later, we see Din seeking counsel with Bo-Katan Kreez, played by Katie Sackoff. She's on the planet Kalevala Kale, Kale, <laughs> in the Mandalore system. Uh, she has lost all influence without her Darksaber, and Kalevala, I can't say that, serves as her base of power. And you can tell immediately that she is pissed and wild bitter. She tells him that he should lead the Mandalorians. Um, she has clearly lost all respect for her own people when they wouldn't let her lead without a physical symbol, which was the Darksaber. Mando does have it, or Din does have it, which he confirms with her, uh, and that will no doubt lead to some interesting encounters when he finally does make it to the surface of the planet at last, whenever that's going to be here in this season. Um, Bokachan says that her forces melted away when she returned to them without the Darksaber. They cared more about what the about what that weapon symbolizes than the individual who carries it. And that person is currently Din, who went in combat for Moff Gideon before offering it to offering to hand over to Bokatan. She did refuse that offer, unlike when Sabine Wren had given it to her freely in the Rebels series that launched Bo-Katan's second reign as Mandalore, which also ended in ruin when the Great Purge and Moff Gideon's theft of the Darksaber. Unless she plans to fight Din for it, Bo-Katan cannot possess the weapon that will make her people follow her. And a lot of that I took from Mike Walsh. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen Rebels, okay? <laughs> I recommend it, though, if you haven't. It's gonna have a lot of significance in this season, as is the sister show, Clone Wars. Bo-Katan also tells Din that the mines are beneath the civic center on the city of Sundari, the capital of Mandalore, which we saw a bit of in the Clone Wars city series. Oh my gosh. All Mandalorians, not just the Watch's religious zealots, consider the living waters special because they sit beneath the mines where Mandalorians got their Beskar or used to forge their sacred Beskar steel. That's why Mandalore built its capital city of Sundari above them, seen previously animated in the Clone Wars as one of those biodomes among the planet of sand. Additionally, Bukatan's sister, Duchess Satine Kreese, once ruled from San once ruled Mandalore from Sundari, so she has even more reason to be pretty angry. Also, I think Bokasan herself did too, briefly. 
And that's the episode. Uh, this is exciting. This is very exciting. Give it an episode or two, hopefully max, and we're going to be seeing Mandalore. What is it like after the war without all the legends? What is it really like? Is there going to be water beneath the planet's surface still? Is anything left in the mines? Is anyone left on the planet? My guess is that it will not be nearly as abandoned as we've all been led to believe. If even a single traitor came back from Mandalore, went and came back from Mandalore with that one with that one relic with Mandalorian writing on it from the surface of the planet, there must be other people there. Well, why would he have just shown up? Must be some kind of like secret base. We'll see. I don't know, but I'm excited. And we'll wrap up this episode with some of my quantum mania notes, which are not gonna be all that positive. Um we, we kind of start things, Cassie gets arrested, well, keeps getting arrested, I guess, um, at protests for the kind of thing that we saw in the Falcon and Winter Soldier show. Basically, the people who blipped back have extremely limited shelter and resources, and it's kind of shocking, to be frank, that Hope and Scott aren't completely agreeing and even joining in on with her at these protests, or even trying to do anything to help the honestly very serious issue at hand. It's a little bit odd. Uh, Scott's ego has gotten entirely out of hand, and Cassie does call him out on those points as well. Does anything come of it? Not really, but she does call him out on it. <laughs> Janet was in the quantum realm for 30 years or something like that, uh, but she won't talk about her time there, which of course feels very cheesy and male-written. <laughs> that's, that's like half or at least well, maybe more than half of her life or say less than half of her life. Um, you can't just ignore that. And I don't think anybody would ever try to, like, especially with the things that we learn happened down there. You would want to tell somebody. <laughs> this just feels like it was written by a really egotistical dude just writing Janet extremely poorly. Um, Cassie has been studying in the quantum realm, and Janet immediately says, Why didn't you ask me about it? Babe, literally, the last thing you said to Hope, that's why. <laughs> you told her you weren't going to want to talk about it. <laughs> um, Cassie basically built a subatomic telescope looking at the quantum realm, and Janet is, like, really impressed for a second. And then Cassie explains what a telescope is, and Janet freaks out. Um, it's just really bad character writing. It really is. Uh, she she rips the wiring out of the thing, admits she has a secret, which is, like, again, just this is just bad writing of her character. Um, and then the thing turns back on, because that's how electricity works. And it sucks all of them in. Hope immediately puts on her suit to save her mom. Scott doesn't put on his suit until a few minutes later when it's clear that he can't catch Cassie without it. I don't know why he didn't do it immediately. That seemed pretty obvious. And then later on we find out Cassie has her suit too, which she also should have just put on immediately. You're in the you're in an unknown realm. You should be prepared, right? <laughs> Whatever. Uh, Scott and Cassie end up getting separated from the other three, and I had the realization that the fact that Scott never added wings to his outfit kind of seems like an obvious no-brainer, and thus major flaw. Um, it just seems like why it's obvious that the wings are superior. Just add wings to your ant suit. <laughs> Um, the quantum people end up saving those two, and Scott just didn't know that they even existed. Then we get uh, Janet, who 
she talks about places called the Void and Subatomica and all the stuff. And like, why didn't you talk about this when you made it out of here? And you're just not. We could have avoided this scenario if you just talked about your feelings. I don't know. It's just a really bad. And then they ha- and then there's this really stupid cliche thing about her fighting this pirate thing, and it's like, oh yeah, we're buddies, and we just have to like violently fight. I hate that cliche. That's such a stupid cliche. Um, I will say the drink the ooze was funny. Um, basically they have to drink the ooze to understand the quantum language. It, it was funny. The thing glowing on the dude's forehead when he reads minds was frankly kind of annoying. Um, yeah. (laughs) A lot of, a lot of weird stuff. Oh yeah. And then when Bill Murray shows up, um, that was, that was, man, this did not age well. I can't believe they kept him in this after everything. That yeah, Bill Murray, especially this like weird semi-sexual Bill Murray character they gave him, who was banging Janet back in the day. Like oh god, it 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 was cringe. It was very is er, oh. Ugh. <laughs> uh, another cheesy line. There was the uh, you led them straight to us. Oh my god, how many, how many, how? Oh my god, come on. We couldn't have written anything better than this. And that's, I think, finally when Cassie puts on her super suit after, you know, all this stuff beforehand, I guess, not mattering to her. And then Modok appears. He works for Kang. Kang made him like that. There's a butt joke. There's a, you know, there's all kinds of weird jokes about his messed up body. Um, Kang, basically, Kang's ship could travel the multiverse is the whole plot. He was... Uh, he crashed here, and Janet helped him fix it, but then learns that he was already the Conqueror. Uh, he says that King is who he needs to be. He had been sabotaged and trapped there, and blah, blah, blah. So, um, basically, Janet makes it so that he's trapped in the quantum realm with her, and he makes it his little empire. I'm not sure how he got this army, this loyal army of soldiers, because it seems that everybody in the quantum realm hates him. Where did the loyal army come from? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I guess there's people who will be bootlickers in every society, but still, I pfft, okay. There's a lot of plot holes, is what I'm saying. Um, he he needs to Kang needs to rebuild his core. Hence, looking for Scott and Cassie because he needs the pin particles to do it. Um, there's a lot of total silence through much of the Kang scenes, which was weird and awkward and quiet. Um, yeah, Aunt Society ends up saving Hope and Scott because uh, her dad, I guess, the, the ant farm that he was working on, like, found its way to the quantum realm, too, so he's been doing stuff with ants and saved the day with ants. Good for ants, you know. Cassie has probably one of the cheesiest, lamest superhero speeches I've ever seen um, over their, a digital display, which was, it was just, I'm sorry, it was stupid. Um Let's see, what else? Kang's machine ends up breaking for good, so he just starts slaughtering people, which didn't make a whole ton of sense, because what is that going to accomplish? Oh yeah, we're never really told, we're never really shown, like, anything about why does he want to destroy all these timelines? Um, It's just... There's not a lot of stuff that makes sense. Just a ton of plot holes. There's so many plot holes. In the end, he gets sucked into his engine before it explodes for the last time, and so he's dead. Great. Um, And apparently at one point he had said that if he doesn't get out, 
everyone will die because something big is coming. And so uh, the, the end credit scene reveals that Kang was exiled by the Council of Kings, which we get um, Immortus, who has, I guess, the dark blue skin, the fair Aramatut, and then Scarlet Centurion, who was this... Um, I guess they gave him a new cyborg he could look, and it looks kind of stupid, to be honest. But the other two were okay, in my opinion. Um, and then they they showed they had this whole room full of kings that they're going to go and, you know, do things with. But who is Kang Prime, then? I thought this was Kang Prime. Like, the Kang. Obviously not, because he got exiled by his own council and then taken out by Ant-Man. Ant-Man! Ant-Man. Like, he's obviously not Kang Prime. We thought that he who must not be named, or he he who is, or whatever the heck is from the Loki show, he was gonna be Kang. And, oh no, he's not Kang, he's this other dude. Okay, he's dead now, Kang's coming. Here comes Quantumania. Oh, it's not this Kang, this is a different Kang that got trapped in the Quantum Realm. So who is the Kang who's the Kang? You know? <laughs> and so I'm we're kind of spiraling here with the whole Kang mythology, and none of it makes sense. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah. Uh, and then in the end credit, the post credit scene, we learn that uh, another version of Kang was Victor Timely, who was this 1920s dude. Um, he was showing off to a crowd his theories of time, and then we see Loki and Mobius from the Loki show. Um, we see them there, and Loki promises that he is indeed terrifying. He didn't do a single terrifying thing in this movie. And that, that dude who was tweeting that stuff about, I was shaking in my seat every time Kang came on this. No, you sound even stupider now that I've seen this movie. <laughs> but to end things on a higher note, there were some funny lines, okay? There were some funny lines, and I will give you those. The first one was um, when they get to the quantum people's place, they discover that their buildings are like living creatures. And so Scott goes, is that building alive? And the dude goes, yours are dead, which is a funny concept, right? Okay, let's see. Where are some funny things? Uh, Cassie tells Modoc it's never too late to stop being a dick. Um, the, the guy who teaches them the language by them drinking part of him. Wow, that made no sense. Uh, he wanted holes. He talks about how he wants holes. And then he gets shot up with a bunch of holes with by the Kang soldiers. And everybody's like, oh shit, he's gonna die. And then they just, like, the holes all fill in except for one. And he, like, becomes this quantum vortex and swallows the soldiers who attacked him and then goes back to normal like nothing happened. That was funny. That's what we like to see in Ant-Man movies. <laughs> Uh, and then we get the last, the last, uh, the last stand of Modoc, which he of course turns and faces down with Kang, and he says, "My name is Darren, and I am not a dick." Um, and then there was some point where, like, we were like brothers. As he's dying, he says to to Scott, "We were like brothers." And he he goes, "I was." And Modoc's like creepy little robot hand goes up and touches his face, and he goes, "I was." That was funny. And then he says, a lot has happened today, which is, I feel like, a huge, a huge, yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot did happen that day. And the last funny line was Kang saying, uh, not Kang, but um, Modoc saying, at least I died an adventure, <laughs> which, 
which obviously is funny, but yeah. So aside from those bits, the rest of it was kind of stupid, I'm not gonna lie. The whole Kang thing was wild disappointing, Jonathan Majors could act, that's certainly true, but holy heck if this wasn't a letdown. We'll be back next week with more positivity, I certainly hope. Uh, depending on when the episode premieres, I might have watched Quant uh, the next episode of Mando. Hopefully we'll have that in the next episode as well. Um, we'll talk the next um, the next tarot lesson, which I believe... Let me scroll through here. The Empress card, which is number three of the Major Arcana. So we'll talk all about the Empress. We'll talk Marvel tarot, Marvel's tarot connections to that. The symbolism and history and everything. Um, and comics. Always more comics. Keep it sweaty and don't be an asshole. <laughs>